are listening to Manhunter Radio with Jeff Shetler, the leading podcast for all things tracking and trailing in law enforcement, military, and search and rescue. Leash up and hold on for the ride. All right, folks, welcome back to another uh, Manhunter Radio podcast, and I'm really super excited to have uh, our new guest. I've actually been trying to get him on for some time, but he's a very, very busy guy out of South Africa. Uh, Clinton Seliers is here to help us uh, talk a little bit about some of the things he's done with canines over the years. He, he does quite a bit with trailing and tracking work, but his canine experience is, is very, very diverse and very broad. Um, so, Clinton, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's um, it's a huge honor to be given the opportunity to tell you what we guys are, what we're busy doing here and trying to do here. Um, unbeknownst to yourself, you're a, a mentor to many of us all over the world. We all look up <laughs> look up at you as as the the go to person. I think predominantly because there's just no bull, no BS in what you do. You're very transparent. The amount of knowledge. Um, you know, if you, I'm so glad that you're writing books and that you're also active and, and getting the information out there. You know, we all come from an era where we used to go to libraries and, you know, when we started working dogs, there was nothing on YouTube. So I, no, I think it's really... there was no YouTube. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a new dawn. I think you are literally yeah. changing the way, um, you, you're literally changing the way people are looking at trailing dogs and it's, it's just for the bet, for the betterment. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the compliments, but, you know, honestly, it's a community effort and that's a big part of the reason why we have the, the podcast is, you know, we're, we're kind of a small world. In, in the things that we do. And, and on, a, on a grand scale, I think we're kind of low on the totem pole of maybe important things in the world. But yet, I think what we do is and can be incredibly important. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so excited about having you on, uh, because of some of the things that you've been involved, involved in in Africa, because, you know, it, it's a difficult place to work, um, not only from an environmental perspective, but also geopolitically. You know, I think that you've had definite challenges over the years uh, with some of the things that you've had to encounter. Uh, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. But before we get started, what would really be great is if you could just kind of give us a, uh, a breakdown about your background and your experience. Where did you come from? How did you get into canine? And how did you get to where you are right now? Right. I think, uh, I think my journey is not too typical. Uh, I started off as a, you know, living in a single parent household and my mom used to hold down two jobs. So she ended up moving around quite often. So you end up becoming a bit of a antisocial type because you don't really get to make friends and then it's the next school and then it's the next area. So I started just diving into dogs. You know, I, I grew up with, with the mongrel. And um, we used to have, you know, the, the dog was my everything. And then from there, um, I started getting involved or fascinated in the art of falconry as a young schoolboy. And, you know, I can remember for my 14th birthday, I took all my savings and I imported a book from Philip Glacier from the UK, which was a falconry book. 
And, um, you know, I started making all my equipment and I went and trapped my own hawks and I bought two pointer pups and I used to go off on a BMX and we used to go hunt and we used to stay, you know, stay in the bush for two, three days and end. And I had my, I had my mom gray a few times. There were no cell phones wow. or anything. Wow. So if we, if we rained out or if the weather got too inclement, we, you just didn't go home. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that's where I think the real passion for, for dogs came from. And I think the nice thing about falconry is the fact that you you cannot coerce birds of prey to do things. You can't manhandle them to do things. So there needs to be a bit of a reciprocate reciprocating um, relationship. And you allow you need to let them do what what they want to do. You just mold them. And this is where man trailing <coughs> is very very similar to me. It's it's not a high high level obedience act where everything is repeated, copied and pasted until the dog gets it perfect. Um, every scenario is different. Even if you take the dog to the same place at the same time, the next day it's a completely different ball game. So I think that's where it started. Um, from there, I was going to go into nature conservation. I love the bush. You know, I've always yearned for the bush, even although I've, I've, I've grown up in towns. But fortunately, small towns, so it was quite easy to get out. Um, from there, uh, I finished school. I wanted to go and study nature conservation. Um, the funding was not quite there. And um, I then went to, I matriculated quite quite early, and I then went to the, what we call our army, which was mm-hmm. compulsory at that stage. And uh, I can remember, <laughs> it was quite funny. I needed a letter from, from my mum allowed war um, because I was underage so <laughs> she had to give me a permission letter and then we went went to the army and yeah the rest was history spent two years there it was um, you know what we say it's the best time of our lives that we never want over again so it, it was good I enjoyed it um, I was on the infantry side Came out there, and then obviously you all grown up. Now you need to start looking after yourself. So I went to the area that that I lived in at that stage was um, gold mining was a big thing, so they were hiring. So I went for an interview, and um, Benny Nelson took us underground, and he he really took us to all the nasty places. He wanted to make sure we knew what we were getting ourselves into. <clears throat> it wasn't sugar coated. Mm-hmm. I came out there dripping sweat from head to toe. I kissed the earth and I praised the Lord and I said, never again. That was a Friday. <laughs> Next Monday I was I was employed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so then I had employment, which was good. And, um, uh-huh. you know, the nice thing is you start four o'clock in the mornings, but, um, you know, two o'clock in the afternoons you're home. So then I continued with my, my falconry on the one side, and then I became more and more interested in dogs, and I got myself uh, a very nice German Shepherd, and I then got got involved in, it was Schutzhund back then, and did a little bit of Schutzhund with, with a trainer, which was um, very, very well versed in the art of Schutzhund. My biggest problem is that, you know, it was a two-and-a-half-hour trip one way, and, um, you know, it was relatively far and it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do in terms of um, I find I get bored of structure quite quickly. Um, when things become too repetitive, personally, I, I start getting a bit a bit bored. Um, and then from there, I 
got interested in specifically in in tracking. Um, I don't even think the word man trailing was coined back then. And um, so I started looking around and we've got our police force, I think, got stuck in the 1980s. Um, there was no no growth from there. In fact, it just regressed from there. The, the quality of the training, you will see canine units everywhere, but there's no canines in the vehicles, brand new vehicles. There's not even a dog here in the back of that vehicle. So firstly, I thought I need to go to these guys because obviously that's what they do. And uh, I went and looked around a bit and I realized that the guys were extremely, extremely hard on the dogs. There was a lot of compulsion. The dogs' tails were all tucked. Um, the dogs weren't enjoying it. And um, I could also, in my little bit of wisdom, I realized that these guys knew where the trails were. You could see them slowing down when the dog was veering off and then starting to trail when the dog came up. And so I then decided that I was going to have to look elsewhere. Um, and I started scratching around online. And lo and behold, I actually stumbled on, on, on the Leerberg site where they had videos of tracking through drive from the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. And that's honestly where my journey started. Um, I got myself the the DVD and I watched it and I got myself a very nice Sable GSD. And um, I started trailing him when he was eight weeks old. And subsequently, he ended up probably being the best dog I've ever clipped a leash onto. You know, he was a dog that was just, I always say you get your best dogs too soon in your life before you realize what, what they are. And um, so that was where it started. And I played around with dogs on the sideline. And fast forward 20 years, I got a bit disillusioned with the mining industry because it became very political orientated. You had to employ certain people based on certain factors. And we then had the illegal miners coming underground. I got shot at and bombed at least twice a week if it was a good week three times a week if it was a bad week. And um, I just decided that, you know, the, the quality of life, firstly, it's no longer mining and the quality of life is, is not there. The risk is too high. And then I went and while still employed, I went and registered a security company. I went and did all my security grading for the private security industry. Um, once I got that done, we moved on and I registered a training center for canines and I got all my accreditation for that. And on one beautiful Wednesday morning, I put in my resignation at the mines. I gave them 30 day notice. And, um, you know, ever since then, I think it's, it's about 11 years now, we've been doing our own thing. I'm self-employed, um, which I'm loving. And we are Mainly working for the security industry is my, my biggest client. We are certifying handlers and um, dogs for them. The only downside to it is we are highly regulated in terms of training material. And the training material is dismal, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's way outdated. And, but that is, that is what the, the minimum set standard is. So that is what we're offering. And then apart from that, I've also been doing my own thing where people come and I actually do my own, my own thing, you know, my own mm -hmm. trailing and my own, my own man work and detection and that kind of stuff. 
which is good. But I mean, there's no accreditation for that because that's not the material that's been submitted. But people realize the value in that. So fortunately, we get a lot of people coming and saying, right, I want to spend 30 days. We want to do this. We want to do that. That being said, um, I think we are still we're still very much sucking on the hind teeth. Um, I think only a few things that he's actually arrived. So we are trying to to align us. You know, if you're the biggest the biggest fish the biggest fish in a small bowl, it doesn't really mean yeah. much. So we're slowly trying no, to no. align align ourselves uh-huh. with international guys and just generally trying to up the game a bit this side. Yeah. So if you don't mind, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reading through your bio as well. And if you don't mind me kind of uh, highlighting some of the uh, major points. So you, you were in the, the mining industry for a while. And I noticed that it said you trained 30 dog handlers for that project. Is that what that was you were doing, doing dog work for mm-hmm. them? Not quite. I had a, an American client. And uh-huh. he he does all the key points for the embassy and for the Mozambican government. Uh-huh. So he approached me, and they were busy with uh, the port of Nakala, which is the deepest deepest port on the the eastern side of of the African continent. And mm-hmm. what they were wanting to do is transport um, precious metals from Zambia, specifically copper. Mm-hmm straight through to Nakala and then have a have literally have these ships coming into the port and have these big conveyor belts uh, loading up. So that was, uh, you literally have, it's almost like a small Somalia. You have a lot of pirates there coming in uh-huh. and hijacking materials, uh, not boats, but they come in and they, uh-huh. they steal everything you can think of, even if it's bolted down. So that was the very first, the very first, um, canine operation we did there and then after that i did another one for him i think it was a year or two later for the biggest uh-huh. uh ruby mine deposit in the world at ponte Mues. Uh-huh. Uh, we then went up that was very difficult it was 120,000 acres not fenced and there's ruby deposits everywhere if you can dig 20 minutes with a shovel you actually hit pay dirt <laughs> Really? Oh, my God. It it was extremely difficult. And what we had is we had these groups of guys called garamperos, and they were coming in, and there's no water on site, so they were dry sifting, getting the materials in small little bags, 20-kilogram, 50-pound bags, and then they would transport these things away on motorbike or on foot. And um, they just couldn't catch these guys. They would outrun the security with 50 pounds of (laughs) of rubies on their shoulders. They just, you know, so we brought in a canine unit. And the the main reason was just to actually identify the guys while they were hiding in the bush. We would do patrols, make use of the wind. You'd actually know there's someone there. And the nice thing with the dogs is the inclination to run suddenly ceases. Um, In in the northern part of Mozambique, it's predominantly uh, a Muslim culture. So uh-huh. firstly, they, they don't like dogs. But the yep. other thing yeah. is they, they're very fearful of dogs. You know, even a, a Jack Russell is, is yeah. quite an intimidating Dangerous. dog. So, <laughs> so the dogs <laughs> made a huge impact there. It was, it was more just a, a show of force than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all patrol dogs. They were not interested in, in any trailing dogs. It was just patrol dogs. But it was it was a huge success. Um, it worked very well for them. 
Well, you also, it, you were supplying patrol dogs for Buffalo security in Malawi and you were doing private tracking dogs with them as well. Is that Lake near Lake Malawi itself? Yeah. Yeah. That is just yeah. to the Southeast part. Um, yeah. In the Rift Valley. Yeah. The whole mm-hmm. Southern Africa is really plagued with crime. You know, it's really uh-huh. uh, over the last two two decades, there's been a huge change in there's been a lot of petty crime and a lot of the petty crime has now become intermediate and, and more serious. So mm-hmm. you have this insurgence where private security companies are exploding. You know, countries that had 12 mm-hmm. companies 10 years ago have got 1,500 security companies now private. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Having a lot of these countries having firearms is is either problematic due to the level of the guys that you're employing. There's if he doesn't have a criminal record, you employ him. There's no training, um, you know. So you've got a guy come off the street. There's no criminal record. <clears throat> you put him in a uniform and you tell him, right, this is where you're going to work, but you can't give him a firearm, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, countries like Botswana, even the local police don't have firearms. They've got special units called SSG, which is like tactical units that are armed. And then they've got the defense force, which is obviously highly, highly armed. Um, mm. So all of these guys like using dogs because it's a, yeah. it's a safer way of, um, you know, no one tries to steal the dogs. It's, there's no ammunition going missing. It's, it's not so mm. much of a liability and, um, you know, the guys on sites, it's actually <laughs> quite funny. You know, we used to go around and um, inspect these sites. And then I would just call all the dog handlers and we'd line them up. And um, I'd ask them to go fetch their leashes. And then they'd mm-hmm. disappear and they'd come back. And then I would just inspect the leashes. And each, each leash that had a knot in it, I'd put the guys to the one side. And I'd tell them those were the guys that had to be fired. Um, yeah. Because those those obviously are the dogs that get tired on 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 duty when the guys go on a walkabout. They don't look after their dogs. Yeah. Um, but the dogs have have been have been quite a a big force multiplier. The biggest issue we've had is the medical care of the dogs. Yeah. If you go to places like the northern part of of Mozambique, you might be a day away from your closest medical care, and then that veterinarian, in all probability specializes in in livestock cows cattle that kind of stuff so that's the biggest issue i found that the shelf life on the dogs are about 24 to 36 months on average really and um really and every time we do a project in in these countries the first thing i say to them who's going to look after your investment um Mm -hmm. who's going to go and check up on these dogs on on a monthly and 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 a, and a quarterly basis and make sure that the vaccinations are done. Deworming is the biggest problem. You've got a lot of parasites in Mozambique, and Mozambique now has heartworm as well. Mm-hmm. And um, the vets were not aware of the fact, and we had problems mm-hmm. with dogs, and when we actually had biopsies done, we picked up that Mozambique is rife with heartworm, which is something really? we, don't have in, we don't have in South Africa. Uh, so yeah, that is Malawi was predominantly just it's it's a, a big security company, and what they do is they go and post guards at strategic places. And these guys, it's more a visual deterrent because you've got a guy with a dog. He might not yeah. be armed, yeah. but you're not going to mug him so easily or try and jump him because. And they like the big dogs. They like the Rottweilers and they like the Burbles. Um, even although I'm not a particularly big fan of these big heavy dogs in the warm climate. Uh, visually, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're a very good. Detail. Yeah, they're 
a huge deterrent. Now, what were the were the the tracking dogs that you had in Malawi? Were those used primarily for the crimes that you were kind of talking about that the security forces were there for, or yeah. was it something different? It is. What you have is a lot of a lot of people commit crime on foot because you have a lot of these little villages strewn everywhere. So you'll have someone typically breaking in, maybe stealing batteries, solar panels, diesel uh, tools, and then they'll walk off maybe two or three miles and then just disappear into the populace again. And what mm-hmm. we found is, um, and it was a big challenge because initially uh, we had dogs that would track these guys beautifully until until they hit the nearest village where you've got 20 dogs running feral and you've got chickens and you've got roadkill and people urinating everywhere and then the dogs just that was the end of it so initially we knew where the guys were going um and then from there i realized i said but we we have to improve on this we have to take it a step further and we need to get dogs that can actually work through this and and it's been very successful not so much in malawi back then that was more of a learning school on my side but we now have guys anti-poaching guys in in botswana we've had we've made five arrests last year where we've literally tracked the guys up to their doors when you kick the door down everything the animals are still there his bloodied overall is there you can match the shoes um and and this is this is where it's important um you know to actually learn from people like yourself um mm. i thought dogs were naturally discriminating odor or scent mm. i didn't know that they were mm. just following the freshest genetic um freshest mm-hmm. gen- genetic track you know these mm-hmm. are the assumptions we make when we start learning and we think this mm. is how it works um mm-hmm. but we quickly learned because initially we were tracking in the middle of nowhere so there's mm-hmm. a set of tracks going out you put the dog on that track and the tracks are long they go anything from four up to seven eight miles and the dog gets there exhausted mm-hmm. and the guy's either left or you've caught it um this mm-hmm. is what practically happens in the kruger park with a poaching there's nobody there so if you pick up a pair mm-hmm. of tracks 99 percent it's a poacher you put the dogs on the tracks and he runs it to fruition um but yeah. what's now what we've realized is you know our reaction times are generally too slow. The guys have already exited the area, and now yeah. you have to go into the populace, and you now have a dog that needs to ignore all of that. And this is one of the reasons right. we've started moving um, moving away a bit from having biting dogs that do trailing, because mm-hmm. I find that it's the visual stimulation on on the herders, especially if there's a biting component, is actually where we ran into trouble in the beginning. So we've tried moving away from that a bit and having dogs that are just absolutely um, absolutely prey monsters and they will do anything for their reward at the end. And and that is that yeah. has helped. And obviously then the way you, you work your program you know, you slowly start bringing in your contamination and your scent discrimination mm-hmm. and that. And and that's, we still have a long ways to go, but we're getting there. We've got dogs. Initially, we'd have dogs that have been in the field for three years that are starting to do really good work. Now we have dogs that are in the field for seven, eight months, and we're getting the same level as as the, the training is slowly improving. We're realizing that the problem is not at the end of the leash. It's at the back yeah. of the leash. <laughs> Yeah. And reading and interpreting what the bot, you know, the dog's telling you, you know, in these situations. 
Exactly. It's got to be really tough. I mean, uh, we, we contamination is always the biggest factor in any deployment for tracking. And of course, we run into it on every continent and every city in the world. I mean, as long as you're in the bush and in the woods, the dogs are pretty flawless. But as soon as they encounter those things that you were enumerating, you know, the pee, the poop, the running around dogs and villagers all over the place, or in our case, you know, city people, um, you know, everything changes and the, the dogs start to shut down. So you, they really need to, to have that experience and they have to have it done in, you know, an incremental way where they learn small pieces at a time to put that whole big picture together. You know, we, the biggest problem for us, you know, patrol dogs dominate law enforcement tracking here in the United States, but the vast majority of patrol dogs don't track very well in the city. And it's usually not because of the hard surface condition. That's not the problem. The problem is contamination and distraction, being able to get through all those things. So, and I can just imagine what you have to deal with. I, you know, that that's got to be tough on an, a completely different level. You know, the, the handlers here in our country could learn a lot just by experiencing some of that. You ought to, you ought to post a couple of videos tracking through that environment. If you ever get a chance, I'd love to, to cross post that in, in some of our law enforcement circles. I'm, I'm actually working on it. I'm trying to actually get, for various reasons, but I'm trying to actually get some GoPros on my guys when they are out operationally. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because it, just for, for safety, for their own safety as well, and for verification okay. purposes and stuff like that. Yeah, but it is interesting. And, 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 you know, the funny thing is I actually sent a, I sent a Rottweiler to a very lean, very well uh, working line German bred dog. And he came out of a household that was just too much dog for them. I got him at 18 months and I made him a patrol dog and I sent him over. And I've got a youngster in Botswana that he's just passionate about dogs and he's passionate about trailing. And uh, I've been doing a bit of work with him. And um, the next thing he made an arrest, I mean, it's seven and a half kilometers in the village. That dog's been, that dog's been operational for three months, but he's been trailing it on the side. You know, and that's a Rottweiler, seven and a half, seven and a half kilometers for a Rottweiler. <laughs> yeah, oh the, the, only, God. the saving grace with that is they, they actually started uh, two o'clock in the morning. So obviously, ah, okay, the, so it's cooler. The, and, and even although it gets extremely hot, the, the night temperatures fall quite quickly. So you, you have a yeah. low dew point and there's dew on the ground. And that dog did amazingly well. I mean, the main reason I don't do any, any trailing with them is they just can't handle our environmental conditions. So it's not fair on the dog. Yeah. But we like yeah. using them, posting them at sentries and, and observation posts and that they see this big black dog and it's very intimidating. Whereas the the locals, you know, they, they actually call our Malinois or when they see our Malinois, they, the local dialect, they call them jackal. They call them coyotes. Really? Because, <laughs> yeah. well, well they, they kind of look that way to a certain extent, other than the fawn coloration, but the shape and the pattern. You know? Yeah, and they, they used to the old school black and tan German shepherds that came out of the 80s and out of our police force. And you know, these were mm-hmm. big, intimidating dogs. And South Africa had a, had a lot of Rottweilers back then. We had, had some Dobermans that were brilliant, that were mm-hmm. operational. In fact, it's quite an interesting tale. I don't know if we'll have time to discuss it now, but the, the old South African Defense Force way back when used uh-huh. to cross the bloodhounds. They obviously imported some stock at a stage. They took the bloodhounds and then crossed them with the Dobermans. 
and then crossed them back to the bloodhound. So you had a 75% bloodhound. And we even today, we still have them. We call them DBs, Doberman bloodhounds. The idea wow. was just to, just to get a lighter uh, bloodhound, that you take the yeah. double coat away, uh, less chance of bloat, just a healthier dog with the same work ethic. Um, and even till today, they, they, they're very, very popular. Even the Kruger Park still has a few running up there, and they're, they're phenomenal dogs under our conditions. So it's very interesting yeah. when I talk to people in other parts of the world, they're like, oh, what's that? You know, I was, I'm so used to them that, you know, you think it's, it's common practice. But then when you actually start researching, you realize it's just something the guys did because they started a pack hound project in the 80s. And um, it was, it was pre-telemetry. So you had these hounds scurrying all over the place with a chop in the air. And an hour later, your six hounds was two. <laughs> so it was... Yeah. It was quite difficult uh, logistically keeping a hand on, but that's where it actually started. And, um, you know, the, the pack hounds has always been something that, that's quite dear to me. And even as we speak today, we've got a highly, highly efficient pack hound team in the Kruger Park. Um, it's probably mm -hmm. the most successful manhunting team in the continent at this stage. These guys are making 42 arrests in a year. And they're doing and, and let's Let's qualify that just a little bit, Clinton, because, you know, you're hitting something kind of near and dear to my heart, too. Um, when you're talking about pack hounds, could you give our listeners, because I think some of them don't quite understand the terminology, could you give a, a definition of what that is and describe how the process works? Right. Predominantly, what the guys are doing is they, they're taking hunting hounds. Um, in our case, it's predominantly blue tick type. Uh, there's a bit mm -hmm. of, of, of black and tan in there. Some of them might have a bit of foxhound or a bit of bloodhound. doesn't really matter. But they're taking these dogs and they are training them from pups uh, to hunt man, initially off leash, mm -hmm. one at a time. And then they put two together in a brace and then they add a third one. And what, what they also do is they take the retired older dogs. And they actually use them to help these youngsters. And right. what the guys are doing is if they have a contact in the Kruger Park, just for con context, the Kruger Park is 6 million acres. Mm -hmm. So it's a, big, it's a big area. So if they have a contact there with people, they put a chopper in the air and they go to that GPS coordinate with, I think they do three dogs at a time. That's what they can fit in the chopper. Um, they, and sometimes they take up to six dogs. And they put these dogs down, and the dogs, obviously, whatever man trail they pick up gets ran. There's no scent discrimination or anything. The dogs run around, they pick up trail, they strike, and they run. And they give these dogs aerial support. And these guys are regularly doing 25, 30 kilometers, upwards to 40-kilometer trails and making apprehension. Um, right. which I think is, is absolutely amazing. Those dogs are averaging 18 to 22 kilometers an hour on those trails. These trails are obviously fresh. Um, yeah. They normally have a, a one very cold-nosed dog in that pack to try and pick up the trail and to try and make up a direction. And then the moment the trail gets a bit fresher, they've also got harder running dogs that are a bit faster but these dogs run and and the funny thing is even although they're pure hounds that um the guys the guy they tree the guys the guys hear these hounds coming and obviously <laughs> i think it, i think it's a bit of a mental thing there's a chopper in the air 
giving them coverage. And, and these guys climb in trees and the hounds jump up and down and they bay and they go yeah. crazy. And yeah. um, it's actually quite amazing. The moment that chopper lands, the hounds yeah. go back to the chopper. Uh, they, if uh -huh. they want, if they need, if they need the hounds, they just put the chopper down. Once the bird is down, the dogs come running in, and they then apprehend those guys, and they bring the hounds back in, and they feed them on top of the guys. Yeah. They, they they literally lay them out head to tail, handcuffed, <laughs> and these these guys, these dogs, then get fed. They have their whole meal on top of these guys <laughs> until until they they they've completed their meal, and then then they go out. And they've got a few of these teams. I think they've got upward of about thirty two odd dogs that they use yeah. in a rotational basis, and it's it's extremely efficient. And they run these dogs in lion country, buffalo country. Uh, you know the whole big five, and they've they've gone from you know having severe losses and a little bit of success to having zero losses and a lot of success. These dogs are completely. What is it? What, what's the big difference for little losses? What 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 would you attribute that to? Why has it changed? I think the the guy running the program, um, uh -huh. I think, has gotten to the point where he's just got it down. You know, I think he just. Okay. I think. I think initially they used to just take inexperienced dogs out, with the hope yeah. that they would gain experience and they would run the dogs and they would whittle themselves out. Whereas now, he has a specific training program, and mm -hmm. each each dog. You know, initially the guys used to just put a pack out there. Half of the dogs are just trailing each other, and um, now each dog gets trained individually. Then they've got a young dog that they train them with, and then they do. You know, they have. This is the other thing. They have the resources now. Back then, um, you know, poaching was not such a big problem and you did not have the same, for instance, aerial support. You would very rarely get a chopper out. These guys mm -hmm. now have a bird permanently available to them. So those pups are in and out. They get fed and the chopper gets started up while they're eating and they take mm -hmm. them out. So I think the whole progression, um, the way they get trained, the environment, starting them in a completely safe environment, Doing very mm -hmm. short trails, getting them. I think the I think telemetry and the use of e collars has mm -hmm. also made a world of difference. You can now game proof mm -hmm. these animals, which they couldn't do in the past. You can find the lost animals. Um, so mm -hmm. I think it's I think ninety percent of it is is the actual growth on the training side, and the other ten percent is maybe also selection on the dogs. You know, it's mm -hmm. certain dogs are just less inclined to hunt man; they'll hunt everything else. It's as if you mm -hmm. just can't get them excited enough, you know, in the midst of all the contamination and wildlife smells and stuff. It's as if you just can't get them excited enough to stay true to that trail once it gets hot and it gets long and it gets hard. Um, so that is that to me is, is very exciting. Um, I've also done a, a packhound project for the second largest um, rhino, private rhino owner in the country. And what we actually did was we we put some Argentine dogos in that pack. Mm -hmm. And all they had to do is keep up and put some teeth at the end. So we had we had four blue ticks and we had two Argentine dogos in there. And yeah. we we did man work with the dogos and we did basic trails mm -hmm. with the dogos. But they did not have no, to be what, good what, So the pack dogs they were off lead though, and the dogos following oh, yeah. behind. Yeah, they yeah. were just. They and it, just did it to, did it take a while? Did it take a while for them to be able to start to keep up? That I mean, that probably took some conditioning for the dogos, wouldn't you say? Or 
They have to be fit. They have to be, once they fit, they're fine. I think what people don't understand, people don't really understand what Supreme Hounds, what Supreme Athletes Hounds are. Um, And you can quickly realize it when you run really athletic dogs like like Malinois. When you start running them with hounds Mm. in the heat, you actually Mm -hmm. realize that a hound is just in a class of its own. Um, Yeah. You know, they, they can really just dig down and keep on going. Uh, so yeah, that was the problem. But the fortunate part with this is they they took he took all his rhinos and he concentrated it in a 500 hectare area. So it was highly concentrated. So he had a lot of security. And your longest trails that you could theoretically do in that area in any one direction would probably be about three to four miles. Um, yeah. So you didn't have to have super fit dogs, but initially. Uh, the biggest problem I had is just the one male dogo. Would, he didn't know if he wanted to hunt or fight with the other dogs. <laughs> yeah, that could be problematic. Yeah, and and once he he got clued that the fight is at the end and, and not with the other dogs, that was sorted. But you know, it was also you know it's a learning school. There's a lot of things that I would do differently if I had to do it again. Um, but I think the I think the greatest learn master or teacher is probably failure. Always, um, of course, yeah. <laughs> Mother Nature's uh, always, best teacher. Yeah, I always say if you haven't failed, you probably haven't learned something for the day. So, and yeah. and when we when we do a bit of man training with with students and stuff, it's it's very interesting to see how emotional people become over a dog making a mistake mm-hmm. or what they mm-hmm. think is a perceived mistake, and people are so quick mm-hmm. to want to help and I, you know you have to say to them just stand back and watch this is actually where the magic is taking place now because mm-hmm. now this dog yeah. is thinking and this dog is now starting yeah. to problem solve and if he doesn't sort it out so what tomorrow is another day yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know so so this Dumb is down the is, problem a little bit yeah so this is something that yeah. i've had to learn i used to get very i would also say emotional about a dog being unsuccessful you know i think well I, mm. I haven't helped him enough i haven't i've made it too difficult you know let's make it shorter like let's make it fresher and um you know one thing i've learned is is one of your best teachers is failure and if you mm. if you go and look at guys that are hunting with hounds if those hounds hunt their hearts out and they're unsuccessful you're not going to battle getting them in the back of the truck next saturday I mean, they're going to be piling in there and they're going to be hunting twice as hard as they did last weekend. And, you know, when I started looking at it in that way, um, you know, failure builds character. You know, if you, you yeah. take people that have, have had a silver spoon in their mouths the, ho- the whole lives, um, the smallest of adversity tends to create an issue for them. You know, they, they, they haven't got the skill sets to overcome that. So I believe um, a dog has to battle a bit. It has to... It has to work hard, and if it's if it's not successful, tomorrow is another day. You know, let it go, let it go back, let it think about about life. And and I've mm-hmm. had the same. I've had dogs muck around, and you think to yourself, how on earth is this dog battling so much? But the reality with trailing is we're not seeing the challenges that dog's seeing at that specific moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and this is we can't why, smell the problem. <laughs> exactly. And after yeah. reading your work, I've realised that. You know, we don't know anything when it comes to dogs, especially your, the way you describe scent and where you get these eddies and, you know, the mm-hmm. scent gets gets deposited back a bit further and the mm-hmm. dog's pooling there and he's pooling there and you're thinking, what the <laughs> hell, you, you want to put a, a size 11 boot somewhere where the, sh- where the sun doesn't shine. And But, I mean, it, 
now I just sit back and I let the dogs hunt. And, and it's yeah. a beautiful thing. <laughs> well, and I think what's, what's so great about it is, is now we can videotape it and do yeah. GPS overlays. And, and by mm. watching the video and then looking at the GPS overlays, we can dissect how the track worked, how the air scent worked, and we can put together some pieces of what's going on with the dogs and, and, and their thinking that we could not have done 20 years ago. You know, no, it's, when it's, a lot of this technology wasn't available. And and you know, the funny really, thing really is, amazing. And, and this is also something that I've picked up from yourself. You know, you have to go and look at your your own videos. You have to go and look. It's the first, you know, it's the easiest you realize that, um, you know, you're either cueing the dog too much. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I was the first person when I, when I got into your work, <coughs> I, I loved your work. But mm-hmm. I did not agree with the fact that you went blind or double blind so quickly because I mm-hmm. thought to myself, you can't just allow a dog that still needs to learn a skill set to just go mm-hmm. and, you know, run around and hopefully you'll figure it out. But that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. That's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And what, I, what I've realized is, you know, all my dogs from day one is, is blind. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I just – I just dropped that leash. My, my dogs have sometimes got maybe a hundred trails behind them and I haven't picked the leash up yet simply because mm-hmm. they can drag that leash. It can get stuck. They look behind them. I'm not there. So they're not worried mm-hmm. about leash inputs. They step on it. It gets caught up. They learn to drag themselves out of it. Um, but for that dog, even although I know where that trail is, for that dog, it's a blind trail because mm-hmm. I'm standing 30 meters behind him. And I'm not queuing him as far as possible. And I'm just allowing him to figure it out. And that is one point where I disagreed with your work initially. And now mm-hmm. I preach it every single way. You know, <laughs> if, if the moment I see someone starting to influence the dog knowingly or unknowingly, and every time I do a workshop, you know, sometimes you get people that are, um, you know, they they – they think they are a little bit further than they are. You know, they're very comfortable mm-hmm. with their work. Um, and then when yeah. you watch them work, you realize, but there's a hell of a lot of queuing going on. There's no blind work being done. And, um, you know, the most beautiful thing I'll say to someone, listen, you, you're influencing the dog too much. And then, you know, there's like a bit of a, a conflict and they want to get into an argument. And I'll say, all right, just drop the leash. Mm-hmm. No, but I say, well, it's a safe environment. Just drop the leash. And they drop that trailing leash. And within 10 meters, the dog's off in completely a different direction. And mm-hmm. the dog is having a whale of a time. He's mm-hmm. marking over here and back to the car. And they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, I told you I can't let the dog go. And I said, well, you should mm-hmm. be able to let the dog go. If he's fixated on odor and he's trailing, he shouldn't be too worried about you at the back. And um, Yeah, he should yeah. actually already be with your victim by then. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, yeah. it's been very. So I got. I've got a question for you, if you don't mind, and and I, I wanted to go over it before I forgot about it. And I hate to interrupt you because, you know, the everything that you're telling is just so interesting, and I know our listeners are going to love it. First off, you're going to have to do another podcast. Um, and I have a very good friend of mine, Heath Hyatt, a bear hunter, pack dog guy, um, comes from a long old school type of people that just there's very few of them left nowadays uh but he does a podcast the houndsman uh, podcast i believe and i think he's going to love to talk to you um 
you know, we actually just got done doing a bear hunt with he and his group up in uh, the Virginia mountains in December. And uh, my roots, a lot of my roots with dogs comes from, you know, pack work in general. You know, this is where I learned a lot of what I'm preaching today comes from those observations, you know, working off lead, allowing the dogs to do their own thing. Um, you know, like you said, add an older dog to the newer dog so they can like kind of learn from the older one. I mean, all this stuff has been passed down for generations with the houndsman. It's just the guys who are on lead with the dogs never really learn those lessons. And, and I think it's really important to, to marry the two groups of people up. That's always been my philosophy. But uh, one of the things that you talked about that I wanted to touch upon, you said that some hounds are better than others when it comes to man work versus uh, proclivity for hunting animals. And I, I agree with that. But if you don't mind, maybe you can share with us <coughs> what you think some of the better dogs are for man work versus getting off on, on the critters. Honestly, I don't think one could um, narrow it down to a specific breed. Um, I think it's got a lot to do with a specific dog. And I think uh -huh. where it makes a very big difference is specifically on the hounds is if you can get that puppy at eight weeks and you can get him hunting man right off the bat. Um, so before his hunting instincts have really kicked in and he, he gets too fixated on odor, uh, to give you an example, I've got a... I think you must have seen him. I've got a a young hound that comes out of a very interesting breeder. Um, we had probably the best um, large cat hunter in the world in South Africa. He was unfortunately killed by an elephant a few years ago. Um, now, Tian's imported some. He started with Smoky River stock from the U.S. with blue ticks, and he hunted them very, very hard. And then we started going through serious droughts and the dogs were battling with, with odor. So he needed colder nose dogs. So he then went and had a look at the, at, at, at the, the Grand, Grand Bluga scans. And mm -hmm. he imported some of that and he crossed his lines and started selecting. And obviously the Grand Blues were also a little bit too big and too heavy. So he had to bring them down a bit. But he selected for nose and for stamina and for courage because a lot of dogs will not hunt lion. Once they smell a fresh, a fresh African lion track, that's the end of it. They'll they'll hunt everything else, but not lion. So he selected for for dogs, and he he did this since the eighties. And um, so I've got one of his dogs, and I got him at um, six months, and I've been working him now for the last two two and a half months. And I started him on man, and he's perfectly good. And he ignores critters and he ignores livestock and he ignores everything else. And lo and behold, about three weeks ago, I went up one of the canyons on the back of the farm. I took him on a, just a nice hike, trying to get him a bit fitter and acclimatized to the heat because I don't want to do that on trail. And he put his nose down and that, that dog just exploded. He started baying whining his whole body I've, you know it was just he's a he's a very laid-back relaxed dog he's a plotter and i actually picked up a fresh leopard track and that dog just i you know i didn't have a collar on him i called him in he started running up and down i had all my days getting him back uh so it's quite interesting even although 
doesn't, you know, we don't have a lot of big cats all over the place. So chances of him crossing a fresh leopard track and, and you know, proofing them on that's not so easy. Yeah. But it was interesting that a guy that had selected for big cats for three decades now has mm-hmm. dogs that are so predispositioned specifically for for cats. You know, that, that was so very, that, very that genetic That genetic memory is yeah. what... That I, I refer to it as, yeah. you know, you breed for it over and over and over again, and it's amazing how and when it can pop out. Exactly. And so I think the, that you really experienced that. Yeah, and then the the other thing, if I can get back to to your question, was is you know you can have you can have two hounds. I'm I'm not an experienced houndsman. I'm I'm migrating towards the hounds specifically for, like you said, the knowledge that the old houndsmen have. I think it's a it's a huge resource that we just haven't tapped in, or most of us have haven't tapped in. So um, I think there's a huge amount of experience to be learned from the old houndsmen and and the genetics that they've been selecting for. But what I was saying is, you can have two dogs, and you can do a fire trail for the one dog, you know, get him excited, show him his food, and the poor guy that has to hold that dog. You know, he's going to get his teeth knocked out and the dog's spinning around and the dog's baying. And yeah. and, and and the other dog will just stand there. He'll, he'll come and look yeah. for you perfectly fine. But he just stands there and says, okay, he's going off with my food. Let's give him 10 minutes and, and we go and find him. Um, and, and that's the same with this hound that I have now. He's, he's trailing man very, very nicely. But, you know, I would love to see him get more excited about the prospect of trading. Uh, in terms of if, if if he sees someone, uh, he's very keen to go and trail. You know, if I get the trailing equipment, he's breaking the doors down and he's dragging me to the car and everything else. He, he He's a very methodic dog, and that's exactly what I wanted. He's the type of dog that you can just walk behind him. You can literally drop the leash, and you've got your two hands to yourself, and he figures everything out. And he, he trails at maybe four kilometers an hour. Unless it's very fresh. If it's very fresh, mm-hmm. the head's up and he's gone. But mm-hmm. um, so I like the way he works. But there's, I, th- I think he internalizes that excitement maybe because he, mm-hmm. he, he, he the excitement becomes more of a fixation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he just really becomes very, very methodical. And you can actually see he'll go past a turn and his hindquarters are going straight, but his forequarters is already turned. You know, he's like really... Mm-hmm putting in the effort and making sure he stays true to Oda. Whereas the, the young little pup I'm running, you know, she flies and she's off two or three yards to the left. She just hits to the right and picks up and, you know, she's, she needs to get mm-hmm. there as, as soon as possible. Um, mm-hmm. But I find that the, and it's, it's very exciting to see the quality of bloodhounds you've had of late because the bloodhounds mm-hmm. our side have become show dogs. They're extremely heavy, extremely overdone. Um, mm-hmm. You're sitting with a lot of problems with the eyes, entropy of the eyes, bloat. Uh, the desire to work is there and the drive to work is there. But um, mm-hmm. you know, I always say to people that have got bloodhounds, you know, the best thing you can do is just to cross it out with something. You know, we, we sometimes cross them out with German shorthead pointers, you know, just to. Well, the, 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 the biggest problem for us, you know, historically speaking, you know, this. <clears throat> When I first got into the bloodhounds, it's now, it's almost 30 years ago. It's hard to believe that, but um, most of the dogs 30 years ago were what you're talking about. You know, they're, they're genetic nightmares. Their eyes are drooping out of their heads. They're fat, 
you know, it doesn't matter how you can't really work them very hard because they can't get yeah. in shape to begin with. They don't have any endurance and the bloat is horrible. And so this is an issue that we dealt with historically. And so, I mean, if we go back to my initial years in the first five years, I would recommend people never to get a bloodhound. As a matter of fact, yeah. I, I, I told most people, I said, you know, I got lucky with my first one. He was a, you know, very athletic dog came from the prison system designed to hunt people long distances, but that was rare. It really didn't happen. And, you know, thankfully I did a lot of studying, a lot of reading over the years and, you know, the bloodhounds that we have today are primarily due to English influence, you know, and the, and the English dogs stopped manhunting, you know, 150, 200 years ago, you know, historically speaking, and yeah. they almost exclusively went show where here in the United States, the manhunting lines didn't really begin to diminish until post-World War II, you know, uh, and that's because I think that the influence of the German Shepherd and European methods of dog training became very yeah. strong and uh, predetermined here in the United States. But the bloodhounds in particular um, now, which is really nice, you mentioned some of the dogs that you've seen. We are now getting a couple of breeders that are now working towards the smaller, lighter, more athletic dog. And this is why it's working so well. You know, and these, these dogs that we have now, they can easily do 10 or 15 miles on lead with a handler dragging behind them and still do very, very well. Um, but that's new. It's, it's, it's not been, you know, <clears throat> I would say just the last five years that we've been getting these results. <clears throat> Excuse my coughing. My allergies are really bad today. You have to excuse I've been me. following with with interest because those those hounds are freight trains. I mean, you just have to hold on and hope you get to the other side of one piece. They're phenomenal. You can see they're athletes. They're fantastic. Sorry, I had to unmute. I was just coughing and sneezing. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're, the, the dogs are amazing. It's it's really great because, you know, we, we talked about endurance and kind of the difference between the pointy-eared dogs and, and our hounds. In, as it relates to endurance. And, you know, I teach a lot of military classes here. And as a matter of fact, I had uh, some of the SOCOM units here three weeks ago, and now we have the uh, the general army here with some of their dogs. And we, what we always routinely try to do is to give them some experience running a hound, you know, and the differences in how the hound is working versus the shepherd or the Malinois. And, and the biggest thing that they learn is that endurance and that longevity and the ability for the dog, even though they're working hard, they're not overworking. They're working at a level to get the job done and they don't burn out too quickly. That's really the, I think the big difference they learn. Now I'm, I'm amazed. I'm blown away by the hounds. Um, I think my, I had hounds many years ago and I had the DBs as well. And the, the DBs are nasty dogs to live with. You know, they, they fight over everything. They're always scrappy. Um, it's just a lot of dog. You know, it's a lot of dog to live with on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And, um, you know, then I started going over to – I was fortunate to get access to really nice Czechoslovakian sable shepherd lines, you know, medium-sized dogs, athletic, a lot of drive. Um, and then we've – I'm still a big German shepherd fan. I love them. So we, we've been using them for a long time. And uh, in fact, I find that the 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 your average Malinois with a patrol dog background or with a biting background, I find them to be almost the hardest dogs to read when you start trailing, um, simply because they they love head hunting. And even when they're in odor, people 
always want the nose to go down. And they say, what's my dog doing? You know, the head's up shoulder height and the ears are pitched. And, and I say, well, the dog's trailing. You know, he's just also hoping to see something on his way because he's not yeah. learned that odor is, is more important than, than the visual picture at this stage. So he's, he's using both. Um, but mm-hmm. I find that, you know, this is why I like trailing so much. There's, apart from each specific dog, you know, your different breeds are completely different to work as well. And, um, you know, one of the first mistakes I made with the herders was just to overstimulate them, you know, with mm-hmm. with giving them too much of a bite, getting them too engaged on a, on a bite roll. And, um, you know, if you do that, those first few runoffs and, and the dog has actually seen you, you know, beyond the first three or four meters, you're creating so much um, problems. Yeah. So what we've done is, you know, like I said, we try and, treat each dog individually and, and not just mm-hmm. have a blanket way. But we've we've actually switched a lot of these herders, especially if they come from a biting background. We've switched them over to food. I find that mm-hmm. it's a lot more, the drive is a lot more capped. Um, the mm-hmm. dog tends to, um, I know you don't believe at all in not having someone at the end of the trail. Um, I'm in full agreement to that. But initially on those short trails, we might just, just have a jacket with his food mm-hmm. underneath it just so that mm-hmm. the dog can't use his eyes and he doesn't hit that scent cone when he's 50 yards yeah. out mm-hmm. and he just starts dragging. Um, so this is the beauty of the fact that, um, you know, there's there's so much to learn from, from different people. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing is you also start finding your own way in between of all of this. And this mm-hmm. is why I'm, I'm in a fortunate position where um, we get a lot of dogs in. And not all of these dogs are dogs that are, you know, dog that you would typically choose for yourself. It's a client and he wants his dog trained up. And we have a lot of farmers in the farming community because the farming communities are are riddled with crime and we don't have support from our local police. So these guys are all getting patrol dogs and they're all getting tracking dogs and they're trying to take care of their own. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you say to them, you, you can, you can train a dog up for them. They say, well, but we've got a dog. You know, they end up with a dog mm-hmm. that's either very, very low in drive or, you know, dog's not structurally sound. Um, and unfortunately, with the popularity of the Malinois, we find that I would say 70% of the dogs that are out there are fairly nervous and, and poorly bred. And then, you know, yeah. the whole socialization and everything else was also not done initially because these guys are farmers. They're not dog trainers or dog handlers. And, um, you know, then you have to just call it quits and say, listen, you can't, this dog is, is, is not going to make it. And then some of these dogs are marginal and you have to work with them. And I find that you actually learn more from those marginal dogs in terms of the training than you do from the good dogs because the good dogs just get it done. They've got mm-hmm. the drive to take them through, you know, through the heat and through the contamination. They need to get to the end. Um, I actually laughed. I have a dog in here currently, um, very sweet little female. I took her out the other day. She smelled the scent article and she turned around and said, I'm going back to my kennel. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, hot. <laughs> it was, it was hot out and uh, I needed to just, I thought, let me just do a, a 200 meter short trail, A to B, 15 minutes old. Uh-huh. And she sniffed this and she just said to me, listen, I don't know what you're doing, but, uh, you know, not yeah. today. It's, it's I'm going out. back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so she went back. I happily took her back, and um, you know, she asked me where her food was, and I said, "Well, tomorrow's another day." You know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not upset. You're not upset, and um, 
took her out the next day and she was dragging me. You know, she was literally visually looking for that article because she needed to get paid. Um, so, you know, uh, I find the hardest part initially for me was to get your keep your emotions out of the training and it thinking is. that uh, unsuccessful trail is a failure. You know, that was the hardest yeah. part for me. It's easy to say to my students, but it's not so easy for myself because you, you want to set the dogs up for success. But I still battle it myself too. I mean, I, I tell my students all the time that, you know, I have to battle my emotions still to this day, you know, 30 years later, I, uh, you know, I make, I make a perceived mistake and, you know, I wear my emotions on my sleeve sometimes. So, mm. and you have to get to the point with the dogs where, you know, you, you can't have the emotion because if you do, you, you can hide it from a human but you can't hide it from the dog because they smell the physiological change in your body. They know you're pissed off. And they if know they know it, you're pissed off by odor, it, it's going to affect everything. They know it, you know? They know it before you do. It's amazing. <coughs> Gosh, sorry about the coughing. This is really bad today. This, we, we have yellow. I mean, I, you've, I don't know if you've ever been to South Carolina, but no. every time this March, if you, if you actually look outside of our window, it looks like it's smoke in the sky from horizon line to horizon line. It's, it's all pollen. pollen. Yeah. Great. And it, it's just waves, waves of yellow pollen. And we've the, the, the outside of on our deck um, it's about an, a 16th of an inch thick in yellow dust everywhere. How does that affect the dogs trailing wise, Jeff? Um, it doesn't. Um, and you know, we do it every single year. We trail right through it. Um, I used to think it would affect them. Um, yeah. but we're, you know, we, we've got the army here right now and we're imprinting their new dogs. Plus they're, we're using our own and their trails and tracks are bulletproof. I mean, there's zero effect, you know, all the handlers are hacking and sneezing, but the dogs don't seem to be affected at all, which is really interesting because you don't see any issues with their eyes. They're not, uh, overly salivating. Uh, <coughs> they're not breathing very hard, but every one of the humans is just like me right now. Every one of yeah. us, <coughs> it's horrible. So I, I don't know why, I, you know, it's interesting because we did a, uh, have you ever heard of the show Mythbusters? Yeah. Used to, the TV yeah, show? For yeah. Years. I used to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did a, a program for them years ago. And the whole idea was um, they wanted to test the different myths of the bloodhounds, you know, and the different things that could throw them off the track, such as water, you know, um, pepper on the track, you know, changing clothes and things like that. And so one of the things they did is they put a track out and in, in the middle of it, they dumped um, chili powder pepper everywhere, right on top of the track. And, you know, and, and a lot of it. And what was absolutely amazing, I mean, I didn't know what the dogs were going to do because I'd never experienced it before, but um, it zero effect. And, you know, they're snorting it up. I mean, it was going right up their noses, but it had absolutely zero effect. So I think maybe in a, in a way, that's kind of what we're dealing here with the, with the pollen. Very so. interesting. I suppose it must just be a bi biological ad adaptation from the canine side to deal with these things. Well, I mean, if you think about it, they, they're, they're pulling up so much crap into their noses as they're tracking. I mean, they, they've, there's gotta be a lot of debris going up in there. So I think it, they, I think they have evolved for that. 
That's the yeah. only thing I can think of. You know, I, I can't even imagine having to do that myself. So what what's on what's on the horizon, Clinton? What is what what's the uh, what what's going on now for the future? My personal goals uh, moving mm-hmm. forward is currently I have a security company. We were doing rural security to mm-hmm. the point where we had almost about ninety odd employees on the books two years ago. Uh-huh. Um, the biggest problem we face is we don't have professional dog handlers. And and I say that in a very broad sense, that we have guards with dogs. Um, you do not have the profession pays extremely poor. It's it's a it's a bottom bottom rung income. It's an un, unthankful job. So you have guys that will take it because there's nothing else available. The mm-hmm. general compassion for the animals is not there. Mm-hmm. So you find that dogs are, are not watered as they should. They're not cared for. There are obviously exceptions. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it creates a bit of a, of a moral dilemma when you realize that at least 50% of the guys that are taking care of your animals are not invested um, in yeah. the animals themselves. So I've, I've systematically stopped that to the point where um, we, we don't have any dogs out on contract and I've stopped the, the, the guarding completely. We still do a little bit of, of electronic monitoring for clients. We will have a mm-hmm. reaction officer and he has, he has a patrol dog slash trailing dog. So he goes mm-hmm. out where there might have been something in the area and he responds and if he needs to trail, he can trail. This is somebody that's properly paid. Um, he's invested in the dog. It's one guy. You know, it's fairly easy to to get someone of that caliber. You know, if you need one one of 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 that, you know, instead of having fifty mm-hmm. or sixty. Um, mm-hmm. I want to. My heart is on the conservation side, and mm-hmm. I want to. The idea is firstly personal growth and development. I want to improve my skill sets on specifically. On, on the detection and, and trailing side, there's still a long ways mm-hmm. to go. And yeah. I want to go into wildlife conservation. Um, we are in a, in a, in a country where, where it's probably one of the greatest places on earth for man trailing in the sense mm-hmm. that we have incurrences daily where you can run your dogs. It's definitely mm-hmm. challenging. It's hot and dry in winter, and it's ridiculously hot and <laughs> dry in summer unless it rains from time to time. Um, so the the man trailing for me, I want to empower people. Mm-hmm. I want to get people addicted to man trailing, and I don't mm-hmm. care if it's a purple-headed old lady with a poodle. If she wants to go yeah. out every Saturday and do a hundred mm-hmm. meter trail on the golf course. And it brings her joy and it enriches that mm-hmm. poodle's life. So be it. I'm I'm completely happy with that. And in the process, I'm hoping to and it and it is happening. I'm I'm hoping to bump into a few like-minded people that are passionate, committed, and addicted to trailing. So that yeah. you can actually start growing a proper skill set. I'm not a youngster. Um mm-hmm. I would like to, if anything, the day I lay my head down, so maybe there's four or five people that are now also addicted to trailing and that want to actually mm-hmm. take what I've given them and improve on it. 
um, yeah. because there's yeah. always a lot to be improved on. So the idea is to start specializing in, in training people, obviously improving my skill sets, training people, mm -hmm. and then I want to actually start donating dogs to certain reserves, donating the dogs and the training. Um, there's a lot of pangolin research going on. Uh, I've been speaking to people in Tanzania where there's a lot of human-animal conflict with, um, not human-animal, wild uh, livestock and predation mm -hmm. conflict with, with hyenas that side. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at a hyena scat program where you can actually go and identify the scat and see what they're really eating versus what's being said. Um, so this is where, where I'm at. I wanted to study conservation when I was a young, a young man. And since life has gotten in the way, but I, I think it's slowly coming full circle. And you're getting I to do it your own way. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I want to exactly, exactly. And yeah. you know, I want I want to and, and the good thing is, you know, things that take time, you know, you, you realize the worth when you finally do get there. And the main thing now for me would be training people, getting people really into it um you know i'm currently looking around i definitely need to improve it's, it's amazing i love the evolution of of dogs over the last decade or two if i look at the way the guys are doing detection now versus the way we were doing detection two decades ago um oh, yeah. you know, i went i went to a big military training operation it's an hour from me these guys are supplying, you know, Zambia, Tanzania, all of these guys with dogs. Obviously, they, they, they've got big government contracts and, you know, they supply military weapons. These guys are still taking dogs and stuffing their heads down cones. Um, you know, that's the first thing the dog learns when it comes to odors, getting his head forced down a cone and how they. Um, yeah. You know, and, I mean, you know Wesley well, uh, you know, just mm -hmm. looking at the way – the guys are doing things and, 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 mm -hmm. you know, in following Sinead as well. I think there's been mm -hmm. so much growth on anything odor related on training for dogs and not training for people, you know, not trying to get yeah. the dogs to do it how we want it, but doing it in a way that it makes sense for the dog, that the dog wants to work with that incredible drive and vigor. If I look at the focus on the dogs and the intensity, um, mm -hmm. it's absolutely amazing. And I think, you know, one shouldn't rest until that is the level that you are actually putting out there. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the dream. The dream is to to get to a point where I can supply the whole of sub-Saharan Africa with quality mm -hmm. dogs and quality training and actually leave a legacy where nature conservation, um, even although I'm not part of nature conservation, just through reaching out there through my canine programs, that I can mm -hmm. actually have a proper, a proper influence, and then I've got a, I've got a small, small little. It's, it's a privately funded anti-poaching. Just to give you a bit of background in Botswana, Botswana has got a very interesting dynamic. Um, they mm -hmm. nature conservation is done through the defence force, which right. is a, a highly skilled, well-trained operation. And what uh -huh. happens is with the rhino horn and ivory poaching, um, these guys have got no time to focus on your meat poachers, on people stealing cattle, livestock, and all of that. So yeah. Botswana is sitting with, with a lot of steering issues, and they just can't address it. And your normal policeman that just has a vehicle and is unarmed, he's going to come out and open a docket for you, and he's going to disappear. 
So the, yeah. the, need, the need was to actually stay away from the rhinos and, and the elephants because the defense force definitely do have the resources. They've got the aerial support. And what's nice is those guys shoot on sight. If that chopper comes over and you're armed and you don't drop to your knees with you, you don't have to run. If you don't surrender mm-hmm. with your hands in the air, they will they will start putting open fire and that will be the end of you. And it's literally, it's a book the size of a matchbox that you have to fill in. It's just a GPS location, mm-hmm. how many people, when and where, and you're done. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that, to a large part, has been the resolve for Botswana's <coughs> wildlife because they are extremely mm-hmm. strict and they still have the death penalty as well. But the mm-hmm. the average guy who's trying to farm game and that has livestock are, are really suffering. So there's no private individuals doing anti-poaching. So we've actually started an anti-poaching program um, run on the eastern block of Botswana. It's called the Tuli Block. And mm-hmm. um, we're only servicing a very small area. It's probably the vicinity of about 60,000 acres or so with mm-hmm. two teams. And these guys have made a huge impact, predominantly dog-orientated, but they walking patrols, they're sweeping, removing snares, and then every time there's an incursion, they've been following up, and um, it's been highly successful. So that's, that is also a passion of mine. You know, I would like to mm-hmm. see myself growing that one team, maybe up to five or six teams, you know, guys propagated yeah. out, um, you know, at this yeah. stage. The, the downfall of this whole thing is these guys are, we're not allowed to arm them. So this is why the dogs are, are quite important. And we've got, we do have non-lethal weapons, which also, you know, obviously looks the part. So that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the guys we're targeting predominantly, we, we have confiscated four or five firearms, um, hunting rifles over the time. But predominantly the guys are also not armed. So they're coming in, setting up snares, spearing stuff, hunting with dogs. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, one of the biggest challenges is hunting with dogs because it's very difficult to actually get these guys to task because when you lay an ambush, their dogs mm-hmm. pick you up so, so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Or sometimes your own dog starts growling when he picks up yeah. if there's another dog in the area and then your cover mm-hmm. is blown. So that's been – the dog hunters have been very, very difficult. We've actually come up with a different strategy for them. It's not something I'll discuss here. But um, mm-hmm. we have actually found a strategy that works quite well for them. So that's the dream. <laughs> well, you're, you're literally competing with yourself with the dog hunters. You know, that's not an easy process. Yeah. You know, you know it's, it's actually kind of interesting because there's some historical perspective of that, that actually in combat, you know, where they were uh, combat tracker teams were being counter-tracked with um, – you know, opposing forces, opposing forces, dogs as well. So you don't hear much about it because it's, you know, that's, you know, not mainstream war media, but um, that, that, that's happened in the past as well, you know, for our our U S military. Well, I'm I'm really excited to to see your future, Clinton. I mean, it's just, I I haven't really had a chance to talk to you in person until now. And and I'm, I'm glad I did. I'd love to, to follow this up and probably do another one. Um, I'm going to refer you to Heath Hyatt. I'm actually going to send my podcast to him because I know he's going to want to talk to you uh, because uh-huh. you're doing a, a very similar stuff to what he's doing, but doing it in a totally different location. And I know his listeners would love to hear about that as well. Um, but I just want to say th- thanks a lot for coming on. This has just been 
an incredible interview. I mean, really, yeah, really great. And, so much and if you in- don't, if you don't mind, I want to follow it up with a, another one because we don't have enough time to go into everything that I'd loved that I actually still had about 30 questions about. Sure. <laughs> so if we can set up another one, we can, we can do uh, we'll, we'll do level two next time. Wonderful. And then on my bucket list is coming to spend at least a month with you. Uh, I think it would be a dream come true for myself. Um, it is something I'm yeah, working on. Yeah, I'd love on. to have you. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I said, one, one needs to aspire to things. And you've been, I think you're probably one of the biggest inspirations for people out there that are serious about trailing. Um, mm-hmm. And you're one of the very few people that is, you know, it is what it is. And, um, you know, you showcase what you're doing and it's, everything is, is truthful and tested. And I also fell under the guys that, you know, my dogs couldn't do age tracks. You know, everyone else was doing two days and three day old tracks. And, you know, the more I tried, the worst my dogs got. And you get this pondent and then you hear of this guy, his dog was doing 10 day old tracks, you know, but the weather was good. And this guy did, you know, 40 mile tracks. And, yeah. and, and it just makes you feel as if, you know, you're just obviously not going to get anywhere with this. And then, you know, I bump into someone like yourself and, you, you know, you set the record straight and you say, well, come and show us, you know, if that is, if it is what it is, please come and show us. We love to learn. And um, then the guys become silent. So it's, it's been a breath of fresh air. Um, I've discovered a few people along my journey that are doing it for the right reasons and that are doing it for the art. And, um, you know, we're forever thankful for that. So I can't thank you enough. And uh, thank you for your books. It allows people like myself to tap well, into that knowledge 10 o'clock at night and to read it over and over again until it makes sense. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your, your comments. It's very nice of you to say. But, you know, actually, I watch everything that you're doing, too. and you, you inspire me as well, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have this podcast is, you know, um, I'm, I'm the consummate student. I'm never, I never stop learning every day. I'm out there with my dogs and I experience something different. And I think that's, what's so wonderful about trailing is that as long as you're open to it, you're always going to learn something new. And so, you know, it's great because I get to watch what you're doing and, you know, of course I'm looking at it remotely, but it's so great to see you doing similar things, but then at the same time, unique things as well. So, you know, I, I'm learning quite a bit from you as well. And, and, I, and I hope someday that, that we have that opportunity to train together, at least before you and I are both in wheelchairs or sed, 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 sedgeways. You know? <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 we'll sit on the back of a quad, but we'll get it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gosh, I think it's going to uh, well, have to be you. that way one day. Thank you for the compliment. All right, brother. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get you get you back again. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about Jeff Shetler, available books, training courses, and the Tracker School by visiting tttk9.com or by following us on social media. Until next time, Cavete Lupus, beware the wolf. <laughs>